Welcome home to a life without limits, where you honor your alignment, nourish your soul, and awaken your inner goddess. Some days we fly, some, well, we've got you, sister. Abundance is your birthright. This is your remembrance. Hot Mess Goddess, juicy conversations for a luscious life. If you love the science behind how your brain and body all work together, then you're going to absolutely love this conversation with Carl Montgomery. His business involves around applied integrative medicine, sports kinesiology, and exercise physiology. He definitely knows his stuff. So without further ado, here is the incredible conversation with Carl. I am so thrilled to have one of my favorite mentors on the Hot Mess Goddess podcast today. Carl, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's just such a pleasure. Gosh, I've known you for a few years now and you have helped me immensely with so many different things. And I was thinking beforehand, you've got qualifications that are like three pages long. So I have no idea how to actually properly introduce you. So I might even let you describe what it is you actually do. These days I run my own clinic. I just call it Applied Integrative Medicine. My background is I'm one of about 50 degree qualified coaches in the world. So I'm also an exercise physiologist, a sports scientist, a musculoskeletal specialist, a sports kinesiologist, a kinesiologist, a strength and conditioning coach. I was a swim coach. From there, it sort of gets into a whole heap of other qualifications. So I've been quite eclectic in my career and I was a, an Olympic strength and conditioning coach for 14 years. Oh my gosh. So even I'd forgotten half of those. <laughs> But what I love is that you have combined all of these different things into the most beautiful experience that you then give your clients. It really is. It's, it's been a lot of work, yeah, to try and see where it all integrates. And it was never a, a deliberate pathway that I sought. It was one that each time I got to a different stage and a different level, something else would crop up. So then I'd start to learn about that field and understand that and then started to integrate it. And I actually ended up writing a, a nationally accredited diploma in sports kinesiology through the basis yeah. of it. So that was a starting point for teaching that as well. Yeah. Do you know, I really love that you said that because I think I was only writing about it yesterday that, you know, you're always told by the coaches that there's one thing you need to specialize in or one thing you need to be good at and share it with the world. And I love so many different things and you've just made me feel a whole lot better. Yeah. It's one of those things I find in my career, I've seen so many people become so specialized that they can't see anything else. Yeah. They get blinkers on and they're only looking at one tiny little microcosm and they're not looking at the big picture. I think you've got to be able to do both. So having a diverse range of knowledge and skills allows you to actually do that. So that way you can deal with the microcosm that's in front of you, but also understand where it fits into the bigger picture. Yeah, definitely. I saw you for so many different things. Your knowledge on the human body, the brain, and the way it all manifests your entire life just blows my mind. Did you want to delve into some of that today? Absolutely. There's so many different areas that we can tackle with this. So I've been thinking probably one of the best ways is to look at uh, manifestation. Yeah. And within manifestation, we can look at how we create the surroundings outside of us. So our localized environment in and around us, right the way through to how we can create uh, wealth and health, obviously, 
but also uh, creating disease and illness. Yeah. So I thought that would probably be a good path to start people on. It is. Well, everyone loves money, so let's start there. <laughs> it was one of the things that I saw you with. Like I had so many different blocks, so many things held trauma in my body that was just preventing me from receiving. Yeah, looking at, uh, if we look at receiving as a generalisation to start with, We've just got to go back to the brain a little bit. I'll keep it fairly simple. The conscious brain or the cognitive brain is where we see thought, will, language, awareness, those kind of things. Now, it takes in around about 2,000 bits of information a second. What we then do is we go down to the limbic or emotional brain, also known as the mammalian brain, and we look at the reptilian brain. So the reptilian brain is all fight, flight, survival. Now, what we see is those two, the limbic and the reptilian brains, make up the subconscious. They take between 40 billion and 400 billion bits of information a second. Jesus. So they actually run our system on a moment-to-moment perspective. So they're picking up all the data that's coming from every single cell and nerve ending within the body and feeding it back to the brain. But what we see is when we look at the hierarchy of the brain, the conscious brain, where we see language and thought and awareness, really that is the, in a nice word, the dumbest part of the brain. (laughs) Yeah. Because once we get emotional, that switches off and we go down into our emotional brain. And this is where we see a lot of people operating as either emotional or in their reptilian brain. So as I say to a lot of people, what happens is the moment we get stress of some kind, and there can be a lot of different triggers to that, then what we can see is we drop back down into either the mammalian brain, limbic, or we drop down into the reptilian. So when we're looking, if I diverge for half a second, when we're looking at things like anxiety, I don't see that as mental illness. What I see that as is the reptilian brain is triggered into survival. So trying to talk to somebody who's in an anxious state doesn't work because there's no language in that part of the brain. So it's like trying to talk down a five-meter crocodile that's about to rip you apart. You can't negotiate with it. There's no language. So when someone's in an anxiety attack, or panic attack, which is much the same thing, then you can't actually communicate with them very well. When we come up a level into the mammalian or limbic brain, the emotional brain, what we see is that's a bit like a big grizzly bear. Again, there's no language in there. We have thoughts and emotions are different. So thoughts come more from the cognitive conscious brain. Emotions come from the subconscious brain. So even though we have words for them, we actually feel them. We don't need the words to feel them. Yeah. So a child can feel happy, but not know what the word happy means. They have to learn what the word happy or sad means to describe it, but they can feel those emotions. So what we see is when we're looking at manifesting something, so if we start off with manifesting wealth, let's say, if we have a belief system that's stuck somewhere in the subconscious brain, say emotional brain, we might be four years of age. And what we see is as a four-year-old, you were exposed to somebody who had a lot of money, but their attitude was very poor. They were a real asshole. They treated everybody quite poorly. But for you in that sort of very immature emotional brain, what you do is you start to associate this person has got great stuff whatever it is so whether it's houses or cars or you know great wads of money even though we don't consciously understand it there is a level of understanding of wealth so if this person's an asshole and we go well i don't want to be like them and that creates a what i would call a micro trauma so now what happens when you grow up every time you want to try and earn money which is coming out or you know obtain great wealth in your conscious brain because your subconscious brain has got so much more power to it it'll keep tripping you up and go 
No, you don't want to have a lot of money because then you're going to end up like so-and-so. And it's not that you consciously think that. This is all deep emotional stuff. So consciously you're going, I'm trying to earn money to be able to feed my family or I'm trying to earn money to be able to, to buy a great property because I want to make a retreat or I want to be able to travel the world and explore. So I need that wealth, that independent wealth. But fundamentally, every single time you're thinking about wealth, your subconscious brain going, ah, 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 ah. you don't want to be like so-and-so. Remember, so-and-so was a real asshole and I don't want to be an asshole. So this is where it doesn't matter how much you cognitively or consciously try and program your brain. If you've got that subconscious belief in there that most people aren't even aware of, it will just keep tripping them up and they won't be able to move forward. So then they're going, but I've done all of the, I don't know, say Anthony Robbins or all this great you know, manifestation work and I've, I've read the secrets and all these bits and pieces, but it doesn't come together because you've still got an underlying fundamental deep belief I don't want to be like this person and that person represents wealth. Yeah, that was definitely one of the things I had for sure. And I'd done all them going, I've done all the work and yeah. I don't, and I know logically it doesn't even make sense and I can't even remember what the trigger was. No, and this is the thing is we don't because quite often it does occur for most of us up to the age of about six. So what we see is at three years of age, that's the biggest developmental leap we'll ever make. So this is where a lot of traumas are in that three, four years of age start to occur. But then up to the age of six, that's high development as well, because we're starting to become a bit more aware of ourselves and how we communicate with others. So we can often see a lot of these traumas dig in, in and around that time frame. So you could be, let's just say five years of age and you didn't get a Christmas present or you didn't get a birthday present from your auntie. But auntie's always there showing off her wealth. Like she's just gone and bought herself a new car and she's dripping with jewelry and she's bragging about her latest holidays. So somewhere in there you go, well, she's got a lot. Why couldn't she give me my Christmas present or birthday present or whatever it was? So these little things you go, well, that's not a real trauma. It's not to an adult when we look at it through adult eyes, but to a child it is because they still don't have that cognitive comprehension of what it means. Yeah. And that's the big difference. Some of the things that I've stored in my body, I think, what? You're kidding me. It was that? Like it, how? And it is a bit because it was happening when I was a child. Exactly. And what we can see is a small event that we would see as an adult as a small event, a child would see as a much larger event. So you might take a, let's say a two-year-old and they've lost their favorite teddy, teddy that they need to go to sleep with. Well, that teddy is almost their entire life. So Teddy's been dropped somewhere or Teddy's been left behind the couch, but little junior can't get to sleep without that because that means so much. As you grow up, your perspective changes, but that is still part of your foundational layer. So this is why you might go, every time I lose something that means something to me, I break down into a mess. Why? I don't know. You don't cognitively remember that stuff from that early age. Yeah, it's fascinating. What I love so much is that the body remembers every single bit of it. Absolutely. This is what's interesting. When you start getting into quantum physics and quantum mechanics, it can be very, very complex. 
what I try and do is I take these concepts and break them down into a smaller understanding as possible. And that's not just for the people I work with, that's also for me. So I can get a good handle of what it is. And what we look at in the universe, we can take any particular structure, it doesn't matter, and we keep breaking it down smaller and smaller, and we get to atoms. But once we're into atoms, we then look at electrons and protons and neutrons. Well, we can go a lot smaller than those. At the moment, the current belief, the smallest particle or wave is what's called a quark. Yeah. So what happens, everything in the universe is electromagnetical, or if you want to think of electrical. So what we see is these parts, these quarks join together, and then they build bigger structures and bigger structures. Then that'll go on and form an electron or a proton or a neutron. Then they'll form to be an atom, and then the atoms will form together. So everything just keeps building up. But when we look at everything in the universe, it breaks down to electromagnetic. Now, what that means is thought and feelings, emotions are also electromagnetic. And this is where the manifestation side of it becomes really important. So if we put enough energy, and when I say energy, I'm talking about thought, either conscious or subconscious, into whatever it is, then that's what fundamentally the universe will respond by building that. So if we have a subconscious that's aligned with the conscious to create great wealth or great success or great health, whatever it particularly is, given enough time and energy, those tiny little quarks will join together. Then they'll form atoms and it will just continually build up. So this is why a lot of people also don't manifest stuff because they don't have the alignment of the conscious and the subconscious. And then what occurs is they actually don't put enough conscious effort into creating what they want. They get this idea, oh, if I think about it for a week, I'll create it. No, you've got to put a lot of mental energy to create those bonds of the quarks and then the atoms and so on and so forth. So this is why if you've got your dream house, you might put that picture up on the wall in your office or in your home or something, and you just keep focusing and keep focusing and keep focusing and keep focusing. The more you focus on it, the more energy you put into it. The more energy you put into it, the more the universe, so to speak, will respond and start to build that. But the same goes for negative. So if your conscious is going, I want X, and your subconscious going, I want Z, Z will be what comes up. So this yeah. is where dealing with these deeper unknown traumas that are manifesting in different symptoms become paramount. Yeah, so incredible. And because I tried that for years, looking at my vision board and thinking vision boards just didn't work, but they do. It's just that I wasn't fully aligned with my conscious and subconscious. My whole vibration was saying something completely different. That's right. We can actually see this within science. So there's a couple of good authors. One is Richard Gerber. So he's written Vibrational Medicine and Vibrational Medicine in the 21st Century. So there are a couple of really good books. And there's another one, Oshman. So he talks about energy medicine in therapeutics and human performance. So we are seeing this knowledge come up, but again, a lot of it is kept down and hidden. So it is science. It's not airy fairy in any way. And that's not being disrespectful. That's what I just find in today's world. People need to understand why, not just, oh, it works and I don't know. If you're talking about it, you have to have some idea or at least be able to reference a point that people can go and look at and learn about. Yeah, for sure. I'm one of those that love to know the intricacies of why something works the way it does. And some of it's quite complex. Yeah, I'm never going to understand it fully, but even just having like the way you explain stuff to me 
makes sense. And so even just having that snippet of, aha, okay, that makes sense logically. And then it all starts to align a bit more because I've got some kind of grip on it. I don't need to know all the scientific names of everything or anything like that, but just having that slight understanding is really helpful. And you just hit the nail on the head there. Like I taught for a very, very long time in different courses and some of them required you to use the correct scientific terminology, whether it's anatomy or physiology or whatever it was. But what I found was for most of those people, it still had to be simplified down to some level. Once we sort of have that concept in a simpler format, then we can build on it. And that's what I find in clinic is I go by the KISS principle, keep it super simple. Yeah. I don't like the original one, keep it simple, stupid, because that can imply to some people that they're stupid because they can't get it. Yeah. And I, I just don't like that. So this is where it's just keep it super simple. And then once you've got that basic understanding, then you can actually build from that. And I find more people can connect connect with it then and they're able to take it and run with it and have a lot more work with it and then as their knowledge and interest builds then the vocabulary and the understanding becomes more detailed. Yeah. And then some people just do it automatically, like their whole lives just play out divinely because they're aligned. They haven't stored the trauma or they've worked out ways to deal with it, you know, and they don't even need to know how any of it works. And I, I get that too. I'm one that does like to know stuff and I'm one that has self-sabotaged most of my life. So I want to know why. And that's it is some people just seem to be born with that alignment. What I've come to discover is if I take a slight segue for a moment is there's a platform called PH360, Personal Health 360. These guys have developed one of the most incredible platforms for health. So it takes into consideration Ayurvedic medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, nutritional science, around about 17 or 18 different major sciences. And they've put it all together. So the platform that you see is very, very simple, but the science behind it is mind blowing. So one of the things they've done is in embryology, we have three major layers of tissue. We have what's called your ectoderm, your mesoderm, and your endoderm. Now your ectoderm goes on to form your brain and nervous system. Your mesoderm goes on to form your musculoskeletal system. And your endoderm goes on to form your digestive tract. And then there's a lot of variance within that. Now, what we see is as a human being, we become dominant in one of those layers, depending on the hormones that are present. That occurs around about 15 hours after conception. Wow. So what we then see is once you become a fully fledged human being, is you become dominant in one of these body types. So ectomorphs, what we tend to see, are very slim people. So they are dominated by their brain and nervous system. So they can be quite intelligent or they can be quite stressy. So people who are very, very sensitive, sort of prone to anxieties, prone to panic attacks. So I'm looking at two extremes and basically ectomorphs fits somewhere in there. The system's far more complex, but I'm just trying to keep it simple. When you go to the mesomorphs, they're dominated by the musculoskeletal system. So for them, they're, they're programmed by testosterone at that early age. So they tend to be no taller than 170 centimetres. And what we can see is they become a little bit more nuggety, if that makes sense, a little bit more solid. Yeah. They tend to be longer in the body than they are in the upper leg, in the femur. Their hands tend to be shorter and thicker hands. So their fingers and that tend to be a little bit shorter and thicker. And then within there, we've got two subgroups. One's called connectors, one's called activators. So they have a different set as well. Then when we go to the endomorphs, they're dominated by the gut. So what we see is they can be quite short and they can be really tall. And what we see is again, a great variance within this. So like Danny DeVito, he's one end, and then you can go right up to Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. 
six foot five massive. Yeah. So what we tend to see is most endomorphs tend to be bigger in the body. So they, they tend to be longer in the upper leg in the femur, a little bit shorter in the torso, but they can be big, solid people. So there's quite a ray. Now, how does that affect your neurology? What we see is the six biotypes across those three morphologies. What happens is they're actually programmed at different layers in the brain, different layers of neurons. So their psychology is different. So what we see if I start with an endomorph and start with a subgroup called a diplomat, and I'm a diplomat, some of the different mental characteristics is we like to pull things apart. We like to solve problems. Our brain doesn't work so much linear. We like to jump around. So this is where conversations with a diplomat can go all over the place. Yep. We like to investigate. We're curious. But if we get too much at one point, we overload and we become stressed. If we go to the other endomorph, the guardians, they tend to be more focused around family. They don't care what car you drive, what clothes you wear. They're more around family. So that's how their brain and bodies program. If we go to the mesomorphs, we then go to connectors. Connectors tend to be social butterflies. So they want to connect everybody together. And they like a bit of exercise. They do really well with paleo training and Spartan training and things like that. Then we go to activators. So they're the other mesomorphs. They tend to be more along highly motivated. So a lot of them are sort of uh, personal trainers, wealth coaches, things like that. So they've got a lot of energy. Yeah. Then you come around to your crusaders. So they're the first of your ectomorphs. Crusaders tend to be people who, in their purest, they have their blinkers on. They're only focused on what's in front of them. They don't tend to be very emotional people. And then you come around to your senses and they're very sensitive. So they're people who can stress at the drop of a hat. Again, they're still fine body types. So what it means is if you've got one of these biotypes, and we're all one of them, and sometimes we've got little combinations of the others as well, but if you've got a certain disposition that's set up in your neurology, and then you're given the wrong stimulus, that will create stress. If you're given the right stimulus, it'll make you thrive. So this is why we can have one situation and let's say six different people, all of a different biotype, and they will all respond vastly different to that same situation. Ah, and so that's also why in families, two children or 10 children, but even when you've got as few as two, you can have exactly the same upbringing with the same beliefs, the same everything, and they will see life totally differently and have incredibly different lives. Completely, absolutely. Yeah, so what we see is different people will just respond to different situations. So partly on their biotype, but then partly what they're exposed to as a young child. Yeah. I see that so often, like one, one child will grow up just manifesting all over the place. You know, everything just comes easy and the other one will be struggle city for everything. And a lot of that will come back to how they were brought up. So if we get, let's say a diplomat body type or biotype that's brought up in a household where there are two crusaders, so not a lot of emotional connection from mum and dad, that diplomat might struggle. But if another child is born and they are also a crusader, that environment works for them. So this is where we see it's not just the biotype, it's also the environment. And that's what triggers our epigenetics. And the epigenetics are the things that actually affect our genetic transcription. So the proteins that we make, how genes are switched on and off, and how we also create disease and illness. Oh, delve us into that because that's fascinating. You've got different perspectives to look at. 
So to keep it simple, again, if we go back to the manifestation side of things, if we look at somebody who is brought up and they feel that life is very hard, well, what we see is in traditional Chinese medicine, that would be a spleen pancreas emotion. So within that spleen pancreas, what we see in the physiology side of the pancreas, it's all about digestive enzymes and blood sugar control. So there's sweetness in life. So if you've got somebody who feels that life is not sweet and they've got enough trauma over a long enough period, then what we can see is that change at the quark level into the atoms and then all the way up into tissues and into an organ. That can then change how that organ works. That organ then starts to, if you want to think of it, mutate for want of a simpler word. Then it starts being dysfunctional and dysfunction is dis-ease or disease is what we call it. So long-term emotional trauma can very, very easily manifest into physical conditions. And then we can see a lot of other subgroups that can fit into that. So if that trauma and that sweetness is coupled with a lot of stress, long-term stress can cause the adrenal glands to produce adrenaline and cortisol and other stress hormones too much. They will then interfere with the thyroid. So what we can see is then thyroid problems. If you then add these problems into an endomorph, like we were talking about before, that will have a very different effect than if we add it into a mesomorph. Yeah. So again, what we start to see is this very, very complex web looking at your DNA. So the genetics and then the epigenetics, the things that affect it, which is our environment. Our environment is not just foods and toxins. It's our emotional environment. We then start to see all these other things come into play in that person. So when we look at a a disease in a person, we've got to look and go, okay, has this person had an easy life, a rough life? What is their individual situation that's going on? What stresses do they go under? And then for me, I also look at it through their biotype. So if the person is a sensor, what we see is they are going to be more sensitive to stress. If a person is a connector, they will interpret the stress differently. So for me, it's about trying to really look at that individual and go, what is the underlying emotion? What is the dysfunction if it's created in the organ? What are we looking at relative to their diet? What kind of engine are they? So if we go back to the biotypes, we see the mesomorphs are really good with paleo. They want three meals and two snacks a day. Intermittent fasting doesn't work for them. Ectomorphs, which are the real skinny ones, dominated by the brain and the nervous system. They need three meals and three snacks because their digestive system is just not very efficient at all. So they Mm. need to keep it up. You go to the endomorphs, which tend to be the bigger people. Okay, And again, I'm, I'm one of those. What happens? We only need two meals, lunch and dinner, but we need lots of veggies. We don't need a lot of red meat. So what we see is if you're eating the wrong fuel, that can then go on and create problems. Because remember, your food in your small intestine produces neurotransmitters. So 95% of all your neurotransmitters that run your brain are formed in your digestive tract. Wow. This is where we loop back into the mental health side of things. So what I see is things like depression and those kind of things are vastly different to anxieties. So depressions in that tend to be more orientated around neurotransmitters not being produced in the gut. So can you start to see what you've got to do is there's no one answer. Everybody is individual. So you have to go back to individual medicine and you have to look at it from that quantum feel all the way through. Yeah, I love that so much because I did like a, I don't know, it was only a 10-week course last year and it wasn't 
wasn't food wasn't the primary part of the course, but they did take us through a process to get us at the end of it to become intuitive eaters rather than everyone should be vegan or everyone should be paleo or whatever the latest fad is. The whole thing was to start to get us to eat intuitively for our own body system. It was so beneficial. And I've now Actually, do you remember one of the times I came to see you, I thought I was an alcoholic because yes. I was drinking daily and really craving it. And I thought I was craving it emotionally, like, oh my God, end of the day, I need that wine. My kids have stressed me. Not that I stress much, but it was that release at the end of the day. And it turned out to be a blood sugar imbalance. And you just sat one little thing on my tummy. I can't even remember what it was, but I think I need it again because I'm craving chocolate now. <laughs> but yeah, it was that one little thing. And that's the thing is eating intuitively is good if we don't have all of the bad foods around us because when we look at sugar which we know is just destructive you are looking at a compound that is approximately eight times more addictive than cocaine so when you have sugar it stimulates certain parts of the brain goes i want more i want more i want more there's no off switch so when we see all of these sugary foods and we go, oh, yes, we know sugar's not good for us. And then we go to these sugar replacements. It actually still keeps you in the addictive cycle. So all this no sugar drinks and, and whatever have you, they're still running the same addictive pathways in your brain. They're just yeah. finding different ways to make you addicted to it. So common compounds that we see, if we're looking at blood sugar issues, then again, each one of these topics is very complex, but just to keep it simple, we can often see chromium and zinc are two primary ones that people are missing to stabilize blood sugar. If we're finding people are craving sugar, which can be different to a blood sugar issue, then believe it or not, raw salt. So for ages, we've seen salt demonized. So the white table salt, yes, that needs to be demonized. But when we look at raw salt, it has over 85 minerals in it. Salt is vital for the brain and the nervous system, for the kidneys, for the digestive tract. So we've got to look at using that. Now, when we have raw salt and we put it on our food, we have mechanisms in the brain which show that's enough. All mammals have this. So this is why when we look at, say, cattle and sheep and horses, we can put a salt block out there. And if they're short in salt, they'll go and have it. Yeah. But if they've got enough, they won't go near it. And we're very much the same. So when we increase one white compound, which is good salt, what we see is we start to lose the cravings for sugar. So we see intuitive eating is a fantastic idea as long as we don't have the environment that we do. So it's a great idea. I wish people could do it. But a lot of us get controlled by these sub-addictions. It is really hard to sustain. It really is. Like I've gone back in, I'm not drinking. I haven't had a drink since January 1st. But Congratulations. I have, thank you. But I now have started to crave that chocolate in the afternoon again. And I'm thinking, oh, better get some more chromium because I know with me it tends to be a blood sugar thing. That's right. So one of the things we can look at is what type of chocolate? Milk, dark, white? Which chocolate do you prefer? I generally prefer milk chocolate if I'm going to just binge on chocolate. Yep. But I also, if I have a cacao, which like a ceremonial cacao is what I prefer, which is the purest form of chocolate, then yes. that does the same thing. I, I don't crave it anymore. So what you see is most likely it might not be a sugar problem because you're going for cacao or even if you're going for dark chocolate it doesn't have as much sugar in it just dark chocolate so there is another compound 
that's only contained in chocolate called anandamide. Now, anandamide is a neurotransmitter. In Sanskrit, it means bliss hormone. So what we can see is sometimes when we're having the craving is we want that bliss, that ah. That's exactly it. So we have that piece of chocolate and then we go, ah, I'm satisfied. But for some of us, what we can find is we can continue to eat it. And before you know it, you've knocked off half a block or a full block and it's gone. Yep. More often than not, that tends to be a bit more sugar orientated and therefore people go for milk and even white chocolate. Uh, I think I must be a combination because I ate an entire family block of Kit Kat the other day. But I've <laughs> been there and stop. done that. And this is where it can be like combinations of. So one of the things you can do is get your raw salt. Now, not all raw salt is the same. I was going to ask, get, tell us which salts we should be eating. Okay, so some research that I came across a couple of years ago showed that the Himalayan salt had over 114 different petrochemical toxins in it. Holy because shit. Because the way it's mined. Because it's classed as a condiment, it's not classed as a food. So therefore, it doesn't come under food regulations. So basically, they just dig it with diggers and it's dumped in trucks run off, it's not really cleaned, it's bagged, and then it's sent overseas. So most of it's all done in Pakistan, from what I understand, so the Himalayan salt. Because that's what I was told to get, the pink Himalayan salt. Yeah, no, that's where I started to come across that research. So I've actually shifted to a local product, which is Murray River Gourmet Salt. I love that stuff. So that is so nice. There is another one called Mount Zero, which is done in and around Ararat, which is very nice. The Mount Zero tends to be a little bit more gourmet. So they put truffle and things like that with it. So it's a little bit more expensive, but it does the same job being a raw salt. But I tend to carry the Murray River salt at clinic. Yeah, that's been my favorite. Oh, so many people. I said, I've just got to carry it because people just want it. And uh, yeah, I just go through boxes and boxes of it. So people go, yeah, I just want some more of that. I know you said it can be intuitive and our bodies know when to stop, but how should we be consuming this on a daily basis as a general rule, given what the population's diet is like? Well, the population's diet is too high in just white processed salt. That is toxic. That is poisonous. So when we move away from processed food, then we tend to move away from that salt. But what we do need is we still need the nutrients of the 85 odd minerals and other nutrients that are contained within raw salt. So what we can do is take that and sprinkle it on our food. And what you'll find is if you put too much on, your taste buds will tell you that's too much for me. So everybody has got a natural layer that they will go to. Some people, again, higher, some people lower. Also the different climates. So when we look at hotter climates and you tend to sweat more, then you'll tend to find you want a little bit more salt. And then you've got the furphy that salt increases my blood pressure. Well, that was the thought process of one doctor back in the 1920s, and it's never actually been proven. Yeah, right. But we just ran with it. Correct. We've run with it for a lot of different reasons. So we see that with a lot of different ideas is like you said before about, you know, following the paleo diet or being vegan or things like that. What we tend to do is we focus on the food rather than the person. So we come along and we go, oh, well, being paleo is the perfect diet. That's the caveman. We all came from cavemen. Yes, we did. But what you've got to look at is different regions of the world. Their paleo was different. So if you go and look at the Inuit, the Eskimo, their paleo was around about 90, 95% fat, blubber, and meat. That's their paleo. But then if you go all the way down to South America and you go into the Aztecs and the Incas, their paleo was much higher in grains. And the grains they had are vastly different to the grains we have today. Yeah. So what we've got is paleo becomes regional specific. And then there's that adaptation through the genetics. Again, the epigenetic, the exposure to the environment is what we see. Then we'll depict what is the better 
paleo, in inverted commas, diet. So we can go to parts of India and they have been vegan for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Their body has adapted to that. You put animal protein in their diet and you're going to make them very sick. But there's a still a paleo. So it's looking at more regional paleo. But again, with the pH 360, you don't have to think of any of it. You jump on, you do your measurements, you just follow the instructions and it's done for you. All you have to do is open it and follow it. So people want something simpler, that's a great way to go. I like using it because it helps me to get people back on track for the right foods for their body. And this is what we're coming back to. It's about you and the right foods for you. Not what's right for your son or your daughter or your sister or your brother or your mum or your dad or your best friend. It's what is it for you as that individual genetic being yeah it makes so much sense and so for like because you were talking about the whole manifesting before and we were talking about how i manifested a sore shoulder and neck shoulder shoulder blades arm i'm not even sure which it is yet we were talking yesterday i think about well it's my left side so that's related to the feminine and receiving but there's also the ways that i manifested that in my body too can you delve into how all that works yeah there's a lot of different things like if we start off with a sore shoulder and we work from a very mechanical perspective we can assess that shoulder joint and see if there is a direct problem with it. So if there is a direct problem, that's where something like uh, maybe osteopathic, manipulative physiotherapy, chiropractic, something like that might put the joint back. We can also see certain muscles around that joint become so tight that they can actually pull that bone just slightly out of position. Like only the width of a human hair, which is around about two or three thousandths of an inch. So very, very small. That's very, very difficult for people to pick up if that's out. But that muscle then could be being triggered because of an emotional connection. So what we can look at is the muscle at the front of your shoulder called your anterior deltoid relates to your gallbladder in traditional Chinese medicine. So gallbladder, what we can see physically as the organ has got to do with a lot of digestion of fats and things like that. But it's also got a lot to do with things like anger and those kind of emotions. So what we could see is if you've got pent up anger, that could be affecting then the electromagnetic version of the gallbladder, which then reflexes into that front muscle on the shoulder, the anterior deltoid, which could slightly pull that out. So that could be one pathway. We could see the shoulders playing up because the muscles running from your shoulder to your neck are tight they could be tight because you've put out the upper vertebra in the top of your neck because you laid on the couch and you put your head on the arm and what you've done is you've just gone click and just slightly adjusted your neck so that could be a physical thing but then we might also find that you could have put that upper neck out because that relates to throat chakra in traditional chinese medicine and throat chakra is all about communication and when we look at the back of the chakras it generally looks at things that you feel are outside of your control or in your past So we could see that you've had an emotional trauma that's triggered from your past, which is then manifest within that neck. That has then changed that structure like we were talking about. Put that out, you've now caught a nerve. That nerve runs down and gives you shoulder problems. And then you go, well, I've got a shoulder problem. So there's sort of two possible pathways. And realistically, you can go for, we could go through a thousand of them. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And so, like, I know there's not one simple answer, but how do we at home begin to help ourselves with the manifestation yeah i guess we may as well start there so if we look at how to help ourselves with manifestation one it's not to listen to others 
believe it or not. Because even though many people are trying to give us advice from a good perspective, they could quite be possibly leading us further down the garden path. Listening to a lot of stuff I find on social media, particularly currently, uh, is not good. So we need to cut ourselves off. We need to get back in contact with the earth. So within that, that can just be going and sitting under a tree, just putting some skin against the earth. The earth is a giant negative ionic battery and negative ions relax us. Positive ions stress us. So getting back in touch, that'll fundamentally dissipate a lot of the positive ions. That helps a lot. This is why sitting in nature, sitting down by moving water, so that might be the beach or it might be a river or a creek, sitting under trees, those kind of things actually help to dissipate us. So that's point one. Point two is slowing ourselves down enough that we can go inwards. And that's the biggest journey is once we go inwards, and I don't necessarily mean about meditation because not everybody can meditate, but what you do is sit there and just quietly reflect. So you might sit for 10 or 15 minutes if you can, get yourself quiet, super calm, and then you go, I'm trying to manifest a better life. So you need to be specific. So what is that better life? Is it a better job to be able to earn more money or whatever it particularly is? So you hold that and then within your mind, you start to ask questions. What do I need to do? Show me what I need to do to achieve this or what is blocking me? And it's listening for that inner voice or that inner sensation. So this is where some people will feel it. Some people will see it. Some people will hear it. And it's sitting quietly. And that is your intuition. But for most of us, we only get to hear that when we sit quietly and we're not disturbed. So turn off your phones and all the other gadgets and get back to being really slow. So right now, again, with all this lockdown, this is a fantastic opportunity because many people are slowing down and getting back to being in contact. So it's a great time to sort of sit back and go, okay, let's reevaluate. Let's hit factory reset, hit yeah. that little button and start to go inwards because fundamentally we all have most of our own answers. That must be why I've been stressing more because for me, it's the opposite. I've got, suddenly got kids home and the time that I had to myself to go within has been drastically reduced although I can get up way earlier in the morning to do that. But that's probably why I've been feeling less connected, I guess, with all this COVID stuff. Even with humans being a pack animal or being a social animal, we also need our own downtime. And again, different biotypes also need more and less and in different ways. So we do need to have that alone time. I crave it particularly now because so many kids are at home for homeschooling. And it's just one of those cases where you do not get that off button. So you will get stressed. So it's about taking that time out, going outside if you can, sitting under a tree, lying in the grass, really connect back to it, let it all go and do that frequently. Yeah, it, it's so, so important. I'm finding the more I do that, like you know what I've manifested this year, we were caught up yesterday for the first time in God ages, probably a year or more, and everything is shifting because I'm giving myself that time. Like I'm gifting myself time in nature. I'm gifting myself time to have cacao. I'm gifting myself time to journal. And for me, journaling is a great way to brain dump and to, I speak to my subconscious almost or my higher self through journaling. And there's so many different ways to do it. But I love what you said about the intuition as well, because I think I brought my girls to come and see you a year or two mm. ago about how do we really tap into our intuition? Because I wanted them to know how important that was. And I love the way that you explained that because some people think clairvoyant, oh, they must be like psychic. But the way you explained the different clairs was beautiful and it's just intuition, but in different ways. Can you talk us through that briefly? 
briefly? You've got three primary forms. You've got clairvoyant, which is clear seeing, clairaudient, which is clear hearing, and clairsentience which is clear feeling. There are a couple of minor ones, but they're the predominant ones that we see. So what occurs is we're able to, if we can sit quietly enough, again, this comes back to the sensation going back into the, the universe in regards to the quark and the manifestation. So what we look at is when we slow down enough and we don't have all this noise around us, we can go inwards. We can actually tap into this. So the universe is a giant electrical field. And I was reading some stuff a few months back and they were talking about Einstein and his theory of relativity and the formula that we commonly know as E equals MC squared, which is only a small part of a large formula. And apparently at the time, there was two other physicists who also came up with it. So what it's spoken about is all this information is out in the quantum field. It's just whoever slows down at that right time and is able to download it. And they went on and gave numerous examples of lots of different technologies throughout time and how all this stuff is out there, but we've just got to slow down. So when you slow down enough, you'll be able to perhaps hear it or see it or feel it. And sometimes as you go on, you will develop it further and further. And it's learning to trust that. And we've all had situations where we go, oh, my gut feeling is to do this and I haven't done it. I've done the complete opposite and, oh, geez, I should have done that because that would have worked out. And we're taught not to trust that. We're taught to override it with our thoughts. But again, what we see is the conscious brain is the most infantile aspect of us. So over time, you can learn to actually integrate that intuition with your intellect. And that's what we see many great minds and many great creators and artists and that are doing is they're actually able to blend it. One of the biggest things I say to people is when you've got some kind of question that you want answered, one of the things to do is sit quiet for a while, just calm yourself down, center yourself if you want to use that language. And then you hold that question, you pose that question. If I knew the answer, what would it be? And then you feel it. And it's a bit like traffic lights in regards to, you might get a feeling of red or you might see red or you might hear alarm bells and you go, no, that's not right. And then you might get amber, which is sort of somewhere in the middle. It's neither here nor there. And then you might get that feeling or see the color or again, hear a sound. And it gives you that really good, happy feeling inside. And that good, happy feeling is one of the first places to start to tap into your intuition. So when you ponder it about whatever issue or question it is, you'll get one of those three answers. So sometimes you get what you appear to be as no answer. And that's going to be your amber. That's going to be your middle of the road which means perhaps you're not ready yet or you haven't posed the question correctly. So you can repose it in different variations of it and see if it changes. Otherwise, give it a few days or a week and see what comes up. And the more you can follow your intuition, the more power you have for yourself. I love that too. Don't expect an answer immediately, although it can easily come immediately. And sometimes you'll get the answer, but you'll question it. You know, your brain comes in and goes, nah, doesn't make sense. That's ridiculous. And then you start to see signs all over the place and you think, get out of town. Like I'm seeing stuff everywhere that's just telling me, yes, that's the right answer. And to take notice of that stuff. Absolutely. The number of people I've spoken to over the years and they go, oh, I was given your card by so-and-so. And then a few weeks later, I was given your card by somebody else and then a couple of months later your cards just appeared on a coffee table and then I went oh that's a sign 
and then they come in and see me. Just lots of different things. It's being aware of it. But again, we're often too distracted with everything else that's going on around us that we don't take notice. And this is where older cultures used to actually do that. They would actually sit, they would spend the time and they would be in tune with everything that was around them. They didn't need a mobile phone to distract them. They didn't need all of this technology. We can still use the technology, but be able to quite happily turn it off at the end of the day and walk away. Again, using our intuition. Yeah. And one of the, I can't even think of which scientist it was, even if it was a scientist, it was someone famous anyway. And they used to have power naps, like they'd sit in their office, turn all the lights off and just have a little nap. And that's when all their ideas would come in. Yes. I've seen that written about Einstein, Bohr, many of these top scientists and and researchers throughout time would often do the same. Schedule in that quiet time. And that's what I'm now trying to do. Also, just something that you said earlier was tapping into the quantum field that we are all able to tap into. It's a prime example of that is I wrote a song probably 15 years ago, wrote the lyrics, had the tune in my head, had no idea how to get the tune out and it left sitting in my book. I reckon a year later, I heard it, not even a year later, heard it on the radio, maybe two years later. Perfect example. And it's like, I can't believe that. That's my song. How did they do that? That's not fair. And back then I was going, that can't be right. They stole it from me, but it's just that I did nothing with it. And it was out there. And that's it. That's what happens for many of us. We might get a great idea and we don't act upon it. So somebody else does download that information out of the quantum field just through sleep or through dreams or through inspiration and they run with it. So this is where it's about learning to trust that and going, okay, well, let's run with it now. Let's find a way to make it happen. Yes, find a way to act on it. And again, if you've got fears that are stopping you, then you need to look at dealing with those fears. Yep, which is perfect. That's what I used to come to you for. Rob, I was scared of everything. Scared's probably not not the word, but that inner, you know, I'm going, I've got blocks, fix me. (laughs) I think I even said that to you once. And then you're going, if you knew the answer, what would it be? And I'd get so much in my head and go, well, if I knew the answer, I wouldn't be coming to you, would I? And it was just so (laughs) much. But just, yeah, again, allowing myself that time to really go within has been massive. And that's what a lot of us don't. We're too busy running around trying to do shopping and pay bills and run life. We just don't get that downtime. And a lot of people go, well, I don't have the time because I've got three kids and I've got this and I've got that. When do I make it? And I I have exactly the same excuses. I'm always at work. I'm always doing something. But find just that five minutes. Might be in the shower. Might be on the toilet. You know, it might be driving your car. And for me, it used to be driving the car because work was an hour away when I was coaching in the city. Now I'm three minutes from home where my clinic is. I don't get that. So I've got to find it in other ways. Yep. So important. I used to do the same driving and I really miss that driving time. I loved it. Yeah. It's a real shutdown. Like last year, my family and I, we went up to the Birkenwells dig trek in Southwest Queensland and we went from Melbourne to Broken Hill in one day. Wow. So it was 10 or 11 hours driving and completely chilled. I was so happy. And my wife kept saying, do you want me to drive? I said, no, I'm happy driving because I could just switch off and just enjoy it. I think we did, we did up to there, Birkenwells dig tree and all the way back. I think we did it in five days. We just took our time coming back and it was I think it was around five and a half thousand kilometers. And for me, that's what it was. It was just chilling out in the car, even though I've got the kids there and, you know, we let them play their iPads a little bit, but it was just that, that downtime. Yeah. So necessary. So like, what if someone's sitting there now going, well, it's easy for you two to say like, you know, just go and manifest it and get yourself all aligned. But 
how, like what's other than just grounding, what's that really first step that someone can take, even if it is meaning to go and see someone? Make a decision. Like look at your life and go, am I in such a place that I don't know where to go and what to do? So if that's the case, then you need to find somebody who can help you. If you've got a little bit more under your belt and you can go, okay, now I've got to start asking questions, then sit with yourself, go inside, you know, if it's a meditation type process and start to look at where the problems lie for you. Is it around relationships? Is it money? Is it, did you have a bad childhood? Did you, were you bullied? And the thing is, if I look back at my life, my life was hell. Some of the things that I've been through, very few people would survive. So I started my working career as a personal trainer in 91. And I went on, I was doing personal training and aerobics instruction and all that kind of stuff. And I was working huge hours. You know, I would be doing 60, 70 hours. Then I started working with elite sport. And then before I knew it, my hours were up around 80 a week because you don't get paid much with elite sport if you get paid at all. I didn't get paid at all. So it sort of went on and on like that and working with more teams and more people and ended up going to university in the the late 90s as a 26 year old and at that stage I pushed out to 120 hours a week and I was doing that for not just weeks on end not just months I did that for years how were your adrenals (laughs) well that was it as I cooked my adrenals completely now within that 120 hours thereabouts some weeks would be down to 80 but others would be up to 120 it was just insane And in 99, I had two Olympic teams and I had Melbourne Phoenix that I was conditioning and I was doing final year of uni. So I had a lot on my plate and just completely burnt myself out. But it took nearly 20 years to do it. And then at 36 years of age, I woke up in ICU. Hmm. So I was going down the wrong path. Again, the only thing that... But on paper, that looked amazing, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's what people aren't understanding. Like on paper, you had this incredible career. You'd reached the highest of high in your career and look what you were doing to yourself. That's right. And I paid for it. So many of your listeners won't believe this, but when I hit ICU, I had a blood sugar of 84. It should not be any higher than eight. Most people are dead or in a coma by the time it's 60. So I hit 84 and and came back from it and then suffered with it ever since. Complications. So I'm still fighting my own battle trying to unravel this. And then six months before that, I had a motorbike accident, cartwheeled a dirt bike at 70 Ks, tore ligaments and broke bones left, right and center. So I have those that I'm still dealing with. So manifestation, it's difficult for all of us. It's about trying to focus and go, what is the most important thing to you? So this is where it's also looking back and going, what am I actually okay with? And what am I not okay with? I know we're kind of pushing for time, but because your kinesiology is, you're just a genius with this, because I know there's some dodgy ones out there, but I have never come across someone that was just so good at what they do. And I remember you were saying with, um, with some people, it can be one trauma that they've had in their life, you know, and it can take ages to really listen to all the bits and pieces in, stored in the body to release that. And mine, as much as I've had some big traumas happen in my life, mine was thousands of little ones. And it just looks different for everyone. I'm going, oh, it can't be that. It can't be that simple. Something that my grandmother said to me when I was three, no, it can't be. And it was something so innocent and not even a bad thing that she said. No, and that's it. It just has to be the wrong thing at the wrong time at that point in development. And again, couple that up with your biotype and it can just be an absolute disaster. And I never would have believed it. Like I'm sitting there lying on your little table going, no. 
it can't be. And then we worked through some clearing processes of that and followed it up with your recommendations because that used to be a thing I didn't do. It'd be like, yep, don't follow up. <laughs> but I actually listened to your advice and my life has changed dramatically. It's got to be a combination of a lot of different processes. And that's what I found. Like I had a guy last year come in. He was a sparky. He had, I think it was eight or 10 people working for him. Anxiety levels through the roof. And he was sitting there shaking. So we, we did all the work and we came back. He was just missing salt. Wow. So I literally just sat a box of salt on him, a big carton of salt. And it was just like a light switch. He's just gone, what did you do? I said, well, I've just put the salt in your electrical biofield, your body's electrical field. And he's gone, I don't feel any of the stress. It's all gone. So I took it off. And it came back. It was like a light switch on and off. It's exactly what you did with me with alcohol. Like, yeah. except it wasn't the alcohol, it was the chromium. That's right. And this is where it's just finding what it is. And for him, I basically all he needed to do was just get up a lot more salt. And he contacted me uh, two or three months afterwards. And he goes, I'm doing the salt every day. I'm salting my meals. I'm drinking this special salt drink that I needed him to do. And I said, how are you doing? He goes, I've got no anxiety. He said, I don't care. And it was just simply a biochemical thing that was creating an emotional instability. So this is where we've got to not just assume that everybody's the same. We've got to understand everybody's different. And then you've got to solve each problem individually. Yeah. And I think the important thing to say here too is that I know if it was me a few years ago, I'd be going, well, that's all great, but how do I find the answers? Again, it's taking the time to go within. Ask yes. for the right signs. And like you say, something will come up you'll get a card to go and see someone and go, oh, where'd that come from? And Correct. listen to those signs or someone will tell you of a study they read about salt and you've got interesting of the timing of this because I was, you know, and it just, the coincidences aren't coincidences. And that's exactly right. It's being slow enough and being aware enough to see these subtle signs. And this is what primitive humans did was they actually observed these signs. And that observation skill is one of the biggest things that we have, I'm not going to say lost, but what we've been duped over. We're not allowed to learn ourselves. We're not allowed to inform ourselves, you know, and it's exactly the same as all the stuff that's going on. The number of people that I'm talking to that are just listening to mainstream media and they're not going and doing their own research, go do your own research, go look at the Australian Bureau of Statistics, you know, just educate yourself. You can't sit there and go, well, I don't know, I'm too dumb or I'm too busy or whatever it is. No, take responsibility. And that's the biggest thing is we have to take responsibility. And a lot of us don't. Yeah. A lot of us want to blame somebody or something else instead of actually going, no, I own this. This is mine. I'm going to learn from this so I can move forward. So if we can take that responsibility and not blame, then that's part of that'll help us with the manifestation because we can start to let go of the things that aren't ours and start to own the things that really do belong to us. Yeah. Well, I think we can come back and talk about that just in itself in a whole other podcast. So I would love to, if your listeners want to expand on any of these things, I'm more than happy to. Yeah, we definitely will. Cause unfortunately you're in Melbourne and you have a little bit of time off now. So we may as well <laughs> make the most of that time. Yeah. The next few weeks is going to be uh busy doing other stuff. If anyone wants to get in touch with you just to find out more or make an appointment, I think you're doing some online appointments at the moment. Otherwise, when you're back up in Melbourne, how do we get in touch with you? I've got a dedicated booking site, which is www.aimclinic.as.me. So that's where you can go to book. If you want to email me, it's carl, C-A-R-L, at sportskin.com 
net. They're the easiest ones to get hold of me. Contact me through one of those if you've got a question or if you want to book in. As of, I think we're aiming next year, I will be actually coming up to Mansfield and doing a couple of days a month up there. So if that excites got locals, me. Then uh, I'll be able to help because I think I've treated about uh, at least a third of Mansfield I think over the last have. couple of years. So uh, yeah, I'll be traveling up there to do that, which will be nice and exciting and a good bit of fun. Yeah, I'm glad you're coming up. And I guess too, if you can't remember any of that, just get in touch with me and I'll um, point you in the right direction. Well, thank you so, so much for your time. Gosh, I appreciate it. Thank you for it. having me. It's so good to see you again. Oh, you too. Thank you. We so appreciate you listening in and growing alongside us. We'd love it if you could rate, review and share with friends.